right then, are we ready? Can I just say good morning to everybody? We're not quite at the stage of good afternoon yet. Hello, I'm Adam McCormick. I am pastor of Simon Congregation CFC. And I'm going to introduce the session today. What I would like to do is just explain a few things that are going to be happening. You're um, hearing what I'm saying through the voice of an interpreter. And obviously Noah's seminar is going to be delivered through an interpreter's voice as well. You will hear that throughout. When it comes to the question times, um, if you didn't mind just as normal, we'll ask you to give your question from where you are. We do have to record them. So what's going to happen is when you say your question, the interpreter will then repeat that question because this is all being recorded. You can see that we've got um, a couple of forms of sign language going on. We have um, Noah who's going to present in British Sign Language and then we have international sign being delivered. So there are a few interesting communication varieties going on in the room. For your information, if the alarm does go off, there are no practices planned, so we do need to go. Please do not stop to get your personal belongings. Please walk, do not run. Please walk out and there will be stewards who will inform you as to where we all need to go. Um, can I ask that mobiles are either switched off or put on to silent at this point? Um, if we have been asked not to record what's happening, um, what is being said is being recorded on tape and all of that will be put online eventually. We do really um, want to get feedback from you as to how this seminar has gone. So at the end of the session, if you wouldn't mind filling those in, they are sitting on your chairs. So if you could get one of those and fill them all in, we will collect them at the end. At the end, there will be time for questions and answers, and we leave about 10 minutes for that. And I'll go through the procedure for that again at the end. So the procedure is, I just need you, if you're asking a question and you're speaking, I just need you to speak quite loudly because the questions actually have to go through the microphone and the microphone's up at the front with the interpreters. So if you ask your question, the interpreter will repeat that into the microphone. Um, for those who are going to use sign language, um, normally we'd get you to come up the front of the room, but we're not going to do that just because of the restrictions in the room. So we're just going to get you to stay in your seat and then I will repeat the question in sign language if it's a sign language question. Okay, so everybody ready now? So uh, we are all very excited to have Noah over. Noah's a good friend of mine. I've been over to stay with him and he was over a couple of years ago. We're very excited to have him back over again. And today he's going to be speaking on Passover, the Jesus way. So Noah, over to you. But let's just pray actually before we do that. Let's pray. Can I just check everyone can hear in the room? Is the volume all right? Are we loud enough? Do we need to get the microphone turned up? Is that it now? Is that better now? Just checking the volume's okay now. And um, if you can't if you can't actually hear what's being said, we do have international signing if you'd like to watch that. And that actually was a joke, so I know that most of you don't sign. So anyway, there we go. Is that better now? Have we got the volume correct? Can I have a thumbs up from the back of the room if you can all hear okay? Brilliant. We'll go over things again at the end. So let's start off with the word with a prayer. Father, just thank you so much for a lovely day here. It's fantastic. It's a great place to be. Thank you for Noah. Thank you for the work that he's done preparing. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be with him as he brings your word to us today. And we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a word of apology. I'm using a sign language that I'm not particularly familiar with. It's British Sign Language. But coming from America, where we use American Sign Language, I'm working in a language that I'm not terribly familiar with. And British Sign Language is actually very different from American Sign Language. So I have been coming here over the past three years. I'm going to do my best to stick with British Sign Language um, for people who are watching me. There will be a time for questions at the end, so if there's any points that I've made that haven't been particularly clear, 
please do come up with them at the end. We will have space for that. So our topic for today is Passover, the Jesus way. So I'm a New Testament scholar and I have been studying the New Testament for the past 10 years. My BA and my MA were in that and I'm about to commence on a PhD looking at the topic specifically of the Gospel because that's been my area of interest. I come from a Jewish family where we would have celebrated the Passover regularly. And just to make you all aware, before we go any further, this whole topic of whether or not, or how, or what it was Jesus did to celebrate the Passover and how it was celebrated in those days is extremely controversial. So I need to put that out there at the very start. There are strong differences of opinion on what it was all about in Jesus' time and how the Passover would have been celebrated by Jesus. So let me just go through some of these points. If we can start to look at what the Passover is, first of all. I think we all know that the Passover began in Old Testament times at the time of the Exodus and was celebrated from that point onwards. And the passage that it starts in would be Exodus 12, verses 1 to 17. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. So celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. another passage in the Old Testament we can see here in Leviticus 23 verses 4 to 8. These are the Lord's appointed festivals. The sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month the Lord's Festival of Unleavened Bread begins. So for seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. So having read these passages about where the Passover began, we now know that Passover is one of the seven festivals that was ordained to the Jewish people by God. 
It commemorates the Exodus. Where the people, children of Israel, left Egypt. And the first day of Passover, there's been a bit of confusion about because there seem to be two first days in the festival. The first day of Passover <coughs> is on the 14th day of Nisan. And that would have been around March or April. On that day, a lamb was slaughtered in the evening, just before sundown. Just before the start of the new day. Now bear in mind that our calendar and the Jewish calendar were very different. They worked to a lunar calendar which followed the workings of the moon whereas ours is a solar calendar following the sun. So for the Jewish people, their day started at sundown, but for us, you know, our day starts after midnight. So the Jewish calendar, the start of the day was actually when the sun went down. So that's when you slaughtered the lamb, and that would have been the first day of Passover, just as the sun went down. So that's the first day. And then the celebration began, which was entitled the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So it's like two festivals all in one. So the first type of day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread is when the people got together and they would have eaten. It's right after the lamb was slaughtered. And before that, when people had the temple, they would have eaten the lamb, but they don't have that now. Now this already brings up quite a big question for us. When Jesus was in the Last Supper with the disciples, was that a Passover feast? Was it to celebrate Passover? And which one was it celebrating anyway? Was it the first day or the second day? What was Jesus doing? What was Jesus celebrating with the disciples? And this was just before Jesus went to die. So it's important to know. Because we want to know, was Jesus celebrating something that the Jews would still be celebrating now? And if we look, at this passage in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 to 8, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. However, in John, you can see the references there, we come up with something a little bit different. Because John says it was just before the Passover festival. And the evening meal was in progress. So that was the day of the preparation of the Passover. <coughs> and you know, then that was when Jesus went on to meet Pilate and John doesn't John says it's the day of the preparation of the Passover <coughs> about noon about noon and Pilate handed him over to be crucified so oops with two different timelines in operation here the account of Luke that we have that he's written very very similar to both Matthew and Mark so all three of them give us a very similar account they said that Jesus ate the Passover the night after the feast 
of unleavened bread, a day of unleavened bread, just after the lamb had been slaughtered. John has said here that they ate before the lamb had been slaughtered. And so John is then saying that Jesus was crucified and Jesus died at about the same time as the Passover lamb would have been slaughtered before sundown. So Jesus would have died around about three, three in the afternoon before the sun went down. And that's exactly when the Passover lamb would have been slaughtered. So Luke is saying that Jesus was following the festival of the Passover and it was before Jesus died. Whereas John is also saying Jesus celebrated the Passover before he died. But it's done in a different way and it's done at a different time. So John has it in a different time and it's the evening meal. That evening meal is not specified as to what or when it was. A lot of scholars would consider Luke, Matthew and Mark to be accurate in terms of their timelines. Because we have that in all three Gospels. In all three Gospels they're very careful about the timing of events and they're all very much in chronological order. But in John, that's not what John's focusing on. John isn't as interested in chronological order. John's writing from a different perspective. John's gospel is based on a series of themes, and that's what he wants to present, a thematic approach. So it's a high Christology. And the high Christology means that John really wanted to explain who Jesus was. That's what John was all about, that Jesus was God's son and the Trinity and all of that. All of that is explored by John. Whereas, and so for John, the timeline is just not as important. It's not crucial. And a lot of scholars believe that that's why there's a bit of a difference and the timeline has shifted a little bit. It's almost like John puts it one day earlier. But this is because John really wants to reinforce the point of who Jesus was. Jesus was our Passover lamb and that's what John wants us to remember. So John talks about Jesus dying at the same time as the Passover lamb died to reinforce that point. And my own reading of these studies is that it talks about the first day of unleavened bread and that would have been, you know, before Jesus died. Now if we look at what Paul said. What Paul has written confirms that Jesus was killed before the start of Passover. He would have been killed at the same time as the lamb was slaughtered. You can see here in Corinthians it says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here we can read in Paul, that Paul also would have seen Jesus as the Passover lamb that was slaughtered. And therefore, the celebration of the Passover is crucial. But then we have to ask ourselves how we would celebrate the Passover lamb because if we look at it then, the celebrations were happening on the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. 
But if we think that Jesus was celebrating the first day of Passover, the day of the unleavened bread, then we must consider that the first day of celebration would be the day, the first day that Jewish people will be celebrating now still. So we need to wonder, would that day have been the same? Would it be the same celebration? Because we're actually not sure how Jesus did celebrate the first day, the, the day, the festival of unleavened bread. But you might wonder why we don't know that. But let me go into that now and explain it. You've all obviously heard of the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. So that will state that Jewish people must celebrate the Passover. However, it doesn't actually go into the detail of what the celebration entails. It, there's not much mentioned. It does mention the eating of the lamb. It says you're not to eat bread with yeast. It said you must eat the unleavened bread. So there's small details like that, but it doesn't actually go into the detail of how the Passover was celebrated. However, we do have Jewish oral traditions. And that would be considered the oral Torah. So Jewish people believe in the Torah that Moses gave the Torah to, to the Israelites. But they also believe that there was an awful lot more explained by oral traditions. And that would have been included in the Torah. Therefore, the oral Torah is a bit like a building fence. The building fence that goes round the Torah. So in that sense, the Torah is like the garden, where the seeds are sown. It's the beautiful flowers that we have. But there are times whenever people obviously step in that beautiful garden. They ruin those beautiful flowers. Yeah, so in that sense, what's needed is that building fence. Let me try and give you an example of this. The Torah says that you're not to mix meat with any mother's milk. So dairy and meat aren't to be mixed. So what really does that mean? So we can't eat cheeseburgers? Is that what that means? If the meat isn't boiled. Now the Torah will say that you're not to boil meat in mother's milk. Whereas, obviously then if a burger's not boiled, that's okay to eat. Is it okay to have cheese with that meat? So in that sense, there's no strict guidance within the Torah. We're not actually sure. Which is why the Jewish teachers of those times would have expanded orally. It wasn't actually noted down, but it would have been passed down orally. So in that sense, the, the, the oral Torah is like the building fence around the Torah. So it's not the case, though, that what was spoken and what was passed on was written down. They have just been remembered and passed on by word of mouth for years and years and years. But they were actually then written down after Jesus' time. After Jesus' time, that is whenever the Jews started to note down and document the oral Torah. So that would have been at the beginning of the third century. Now that was after Jesus' time. Jesus' time was the first century. And then much later, I would say, come the fourth and the fifth century, the Talmud came into existence. And that is a combination of the Mishnah and the Mishnah if you're not clear of what that is, that is those oral traditions. That's what we would call that. That's the documented oral traditions. They are gathered into what we call the Mishnah. 
And then, obviously, there's different Jewish teachers made some adaptations and some changes because the Mishnah at that time was considered that that was written down. There's a lot more needed to be added to that. So further things were added to, for example, the Mishnah will explain the Passover and the details of that. But then some Jewish teachers would have added and explained in greater detail about the celebration of the Passover. Because the problem with it is that the Mishnah writers, they were writing that after Jesus' time, possibly 100 years after his time. Therefore, the Jewish teachers, they had to expand, they had to explain in more detail about the Passover, but then that happened about two to 300 years after Jesus' time. So you're probably thinking, this isn't that big a day. 100 years after Jesus' time, what's the big deal? That's not a very long time if we think about it. But to think of how Jesus celebrated the Passover, that, if we want to really understand how Jesus celebrated the Passover, we couldn't really look to the Mishnah because that isn't exactly what would have happened. Because if we think about 100 years, that's a long time. Think about life for us 100 years ago. It was pretty different, wasn't it? It was absolutely, completely different. The culture was different. The way of life was different. Everything was completely different 100 years ago. Look at the way people dressed 100 years ago compared to now. It was so different. So a lot of the traditions that would have been practiced then are very, very different to the traditions we have now. And it would have been exactly the same as Jesus' time. If we look to the 100 years later, after Jesus, when everything was documented, that would have been real time. Therefore, there would be quite a lot of differences in how Jesus celebrated the Passover. So we can't be exactly sure from looking at the Mishnah how Jesus celebrated the Passover. Isn't that a terrible shame? Isn't it awful? But I have more to tell you. There's some good news on that. I'm sure most of you know that throughout the world, Jews still celebrate the Passover. And on the first day, we call it the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. And Jews will come together for a special meal. I'm going to write down what that is. Jews come together on the first day to celebrate the Seder. Has anybody heard of Seder before? Can you please let me know if you have? Okay, so quite a lot of you have. You, you're aware of this. Lovely. So that meal is a very, very special, special meal for Jews. And throughout the world it's celebrated. And every year they will celebrate the first day of the Passover, the, the fe festival of the unleavened bread, the Seder meal. Now, many people think that Jesus celebrated the Seder meal. But we, we can't be 100% sure of that. We can't know that for sure. But I would say there's a high possibility that Jesus did celebrate the Seder meal. He was celebrating that. Now, it might not be exactly the same as the way it's celebrated today, but I do believe that this is what Jesus celebrated. So I want to go into how it was celebrated then but before I do that I want to talk about how Jews celebrate that now now there's many different ways that this is carried out <coughs> if you joined a Jewish family one year you'd see how it was done but if you joined a Jewish family every year, it would be completely different or maybe slightly different every year, depending on the family, depending on the traditions that they have adopted, because things change. So throughout the world, it will be different. There's not one specific set way of celebrating Seder. However, the underlying beliefs are similar. So it will be celebrated, for example, on the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. 
on the first night of that, that's when this meal will be had. And that's when Jesus sat with his disciples. That's when we considered the Last Supper to have been on the first night of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, this, the foods that are uh, eaten during Seder Festival are very symbolic. So right in the middle of this day, there's a meal. People get together, they, they celebrate, they have a meal, and then they will carry on the, the day of Seder. So that's usually what happens. And it is liturgical in its nature, the way it's carried out. There's prayer, there's the blessing, there's stories that are told. And most Jewish people have the Haggadah. And that, for example, it's maybe like in some Christian churches, you'll have the common book of worship. So that's a book that the church may have, and within that is, is, is some guidelines, which is what the Jews would have. They would have their own type of book. And that would be the guidelines for the Passover. So people, the Jewish families, the people will go through this book and they will follow the prayers and follow the liturgy within it. So I'm going to go a bit more into Seder and what people actually eat during it. Seder is um, presented on a cedar plate. And on that plate, food is presented in different groups. There are five different sections to it. Some traditions will have six sections, some five, but that depends on the tradition. But there are five key elements, which include carpas, which is parsley, which is symbolic of new life. Because the Passover is in springtime, therefore symbolic of new life. But the Jews, before they eat it, will dip the parsley in salted water. And the reason for that, well, most Jews will do that. Some of them have changed this tradition. But the reason for doing that is to remind them of how they suffered when they were captive and it's actually to prevent tears, it's used to prevent tears. So the Jewish nation then, once they were released from captivity, didn't want to forget what had happened with their forefathers who had suffered so much. And so this is in memory of the suffering of their ancestors all those years ago and everything that they've been through. So the parsley is the sign of a new life dipped into the salt water, which is symbolic of tears. Then we have the maror, which are really bitter herbs. And for most people, what they use is actually horse radish. Has to be raw horseradish. Can I just make that point? The quantity to be consumed, most of the Jewish teachers would say that it has to be enough to make you cry. So you have to get enough of the maror in your mouth to really get to the point of tears pouring down your cheeks. And the reason for that, it's symbolic of the suffering of the Jews in the past. They are crying in memory of the people in the past who suffered so much. So you take that bitter herb, you put it in your mouth, you put so much in your mouth that you're gasping for breath, the tears are pouring down your face. And that taste is meant to stay in your mouth until the good news comes. Who has charoset? which is a sweet mixture, typically containing apples, honey, 
and nuts. And so once you've taken that, you're left with this disgusting taste in your mouth, which is just all pervasive and like really, really, you can't think about anything else. And then you taste this sweet food and the memory of the bitterness goes. And it's symbolic of the fact that the people of Israel were brought into a better place and the suffering had gone. This is very traditional. Um, there are a lot more traditions actually associated to it that I could give you, but I'm really just trying to stay at a high level and give you bits and pieces rather than the whole thing. The next section in the plate will be the shank bone. Again, uh, this depends on the tradition of the family that you go into. For most Jews nowadays, they actually don't eat lamb. Because the temple is not there. And the point is, if there is no temple, then you don't sacrifice lamb. So why would you sacrifice lamb when there's no temple? Why would you have lamb in your plate? There are some Jews who will still eat lamb. It's not a slaughtered lamb, but it's just lamb as symbolic of the lamb that was slain in the past. A sacrifice lamb. So this again is the, the slaughtered lamb shows us the covenant that God made with the people. That God would save them and so if they followed God if they honoured him and they worshipped him then the lamb was a way of saying from the people to God we actually do enter into this covenant with you God and that's why we slaughter this lamb in demonstration of the fact that we are entering that covenant with you the last section of the plate is a roasted egg Again, there's a lot of interpretations of what this means. Some say that it's symbolic of the destruction of the temple. Um, so, but that wouldn't have been relevant in Jesus' time, because in Jesus' time, you know, that's Jesus' time is before all that happened. But this is one example of where a lot of the things that we talk about actually did happen after Jesus' time. And that's why I went through the explanation earlier on of the difference that a hundred years can make. So I don't have time to go into any more in depth, but that's the basic cedar plate. But another important part of this is the four cups. believe that in Jesus' time the Jews would have used these four cups. And my reason for saying that is we talked about the Mishnah. The Mishnah was written in the third century after Jesus' time. And then we had the more expansive version which expanded on the Mishnah and it was written in the fourth or fifth century later. But in the Mishnah, we do have reference to the four cups. And actually, they don't come up as much later on. But also within the New Testament, there are references made which would seem to refer to the four cups as well. Now, the four cups represent the following. You have the cup of sanctification which is the Kiddush. Again, every festival is different, but this is once a year. And it starts off with the cup of blessing. And it wouldn't be any particular cup, but it would just be that one. Now, when we move on to the cup of plague, For the Jewish people, well certainly I'm speaking about Jewish people now, I, we don't know for sure then, but it would be wine, which is symbolic of joy. So there would be a glass of wine, however, it doesn't get knocked back. 
it would be seen that there would be there would be drops which would reference each of the ten plagues. So what would happen is people would have the cup and they would put their finger in and take a drop out ten times for each of the ten plagues. And as they shook a drop of wine off her finger, obviously the quantity of wine in the cup would reduce. So it's not about nodding back. It's not actually about having a great time, which is what we tend to associate wine with. This is about joy, but it's about the time that they suffered. And the Egyptian people suffered too. And it's their thinking of all of those groupings within Egyptian culture that died, the animals, the people. And it's showing, it's a sign of respect to the people of Egypt and how much they suffered during the plagues. The third cup is the cup of redemption. Also known as the cup of blessing. We've had a cup which celebrated the Jewish people being brought out of Egypt. And then there's a cup which um, then is praise to God. So that's what the third one is, the redemption from Egypt and then the cup of praise. Now we have the three mass tops. So it's three pieces of unleavened bread. And there's different explanations for that. Some people say it's um, the patriarchs, three representing the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Some saying it's the unity of worship, the priests, the Levites and the people of Israel. Jewish people traditionally have had during the ceremony the bread is broken and wrapped and put to the side and hidden. Then after the supper, the second piece is taken out and broken into pieces for everyone to share. So I want to go now to look at a passage and look which refers specifically to how Jesus would have celebrated the Passover in his day. So when they are came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and it said here, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you after I supper. Now we realise this was the first day of unleavened bread. So we can see that as it was this festival, Jesus was celebrating the Seder. says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks. Then he said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So therefore we can see that maybe this was the second cup. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. which is poured out for you. So we can see that there, this is the second cup. There were two cups drank at the Last Supper. Two cups. It wasn't just the one cup. There were two cups. So, therefore, we know there are four cups. Now, some people do think that the first cup, they actually will think that that was the very first cup which would be this cup of sanctification. <laughs> and they will think that because the cup 
is about giving thanks to God. And you can see here that Jesus gave thanks before he took the cup. So that could be the cup of sanctification. We can't be 100% sure, but we can imagine, we can speculate that this would have been the cup that Jesus used. Then the second cup, if we look specifically at when Jesus took the wine, when the second cup was taken, that was after the supper. And if we look to the Mishnah, it says that the third cup would be drunk after the supper. It mustn't be before the supper, it must be after the supper. And look then, here mentions that that cup was taken after the supper. So that's the cup. So it would then appear that that cup would be the third cup, which, as we just learned, is the cup of redemption. Now this, I think, is quite obvious. It makes sense. And this is the cup that is a new covenant, Jesus said, in my blood. So Jewish people have been drinking that third cup, and they had been remembering how the Jewish, the Israelites, were saved. They remember, they thank God for that. They thank God for his people. So that is the old covenant. The old covenant. And then Jesus took that same cup, the third cup, the cup of redemption, and Jesus said that this cup was to remember the Jewish covenant with God, the covenant with God for the Jewish people. But Jesus said that from then on, that third cup would have a new meaning. It would be for the new covenant. So then the disciples would have taken that, and that cup would have represented how Christ died for us. So Jesus was giving the Passover a new meaning. Now I just want to show you some of the writings from Paul. Paul then said, is, the, is not the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Now that's interesting that he said there's one bread. Likewise, he said the cup of blessing. So the third cup has another name, and it also can be referred to as a cup of blessing. So Paul is saying this cup, this third cup, this cup of blessing. So it makes sense if you look at it from these different references. But now let's look specifically at what he mentions in the bread. He said that there's one bread. Now, Paul here is referring to the Passover. In Jewish Passover, Paul is now referring to it specifically, but he's mentioning one bread. Because I told you that in Seder there are the three breads, and they are placed apart. But the middle bread is the one bread that is broken. The other, the first and the third breads aren't broken. It's just that middle bread, that second piece of bread that was broken and given to the disciples to eat. Now some people will think and they will say that when Jesus broke that bread and gave it to his disciples, they will say it was a new ritual. A new ritual had started. However, some people also think that Jesus was following out the, the three the three breads, the, the setter tradition, and broke that bread. Some people also think that later Jewish Christians added a new ritual. And that then Jewish people refused to accept that. But that the three breads were something that came later. But what the three breads can signify to us as Christians is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that middle bread being the Son who, whose body was broken for us. 
who also then was laid in the tomb. Now, we can't be sure, we can't 100% foolproof say what is what. We don't know exactly what the symbolic nature of the three breads is when it comes to the Eucharist. But we can imagine that in Jesus' time there were those three breads. We do know that in Jesus' time the three breads were laid out and what they represented was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which is very, very interesting. Let me explain why. In the time of Jesus, in Jewish worship, it wouldn't have been the same as the Old Testament Jewish worship. Jewish worship in Jesus' time would be called Second Temple Judaism. The Dead Sea Scrolls were then found, and they're extremely important because within the Dead Sea Scrolls we can see, we can read a lot of the commentaries, and they explain what the Torah actually means in its writings. So, with that in mind, we can know and we can see what Jews in Jesus' time believed. So the Dead Sea Scrolls give us so much more information than we didn't have before. In Jesus' time, there were so, so many Jews, so many Jewish people who did believe. I'm sure you know the story of Abraham as he was ready to kill his son Isaac. That We know what happened and we can read that story and realize that Abraham was a good man but he was prepared to kill his son. So the Jewish people in those days would not have had the same views of Abraham. Rather, they would have applauded Isaac more so than Abraham. Because what happened then, after that, was that Isaac didn't know what happened. Isaac was heading up the mountain didn't know really what was going on, what his father was going to do, isn't that the case? No, Isaac did know what was happening. Isaac was aware that his father was going to kill him. Isaac knew this, yet he chose to obey, he chose to be humble, and he chose to accept what was going to happen. But then Abraham, we know the story, and Abraham was stopped and didn't, didn't have to kill his son. So Jewish people in Jesus' time would have believed that, and they would have believed that Isaac was willing to die, but that God saw this, and God then agreed to spare him. So in that sense, the Jewish people's sins were forgiven because of that act of Isaac. So when Jesus lifted the middle bread, Jesus said, this bread and that would have been the bread that signified Isaac. He said, it's not Isaac and that act that has your sins delivered, but it's me, the new bread of life, that is broken for you. That it is my body, it is my act that gives you forgiveness and freedom. Now again, we don't know 100% of how that would have been the case and if that's the meaning that Jesus is placing onto it. However, I'm going to summarise this very quickly. When we read through the Gospels, we can see so, so many parallels and mentions of the Passover. The comparison between Moses and Jesus in Matthew the king of Israel. In Jesus' time, Jewish people were all hoping and they were praying for, and I'm just going to write this up. They were praying for a new prophet, a new king. Moses was the prophet. Moses was the, the king. So what the Jewish people wanted was 
another prophet and they were praying longing for this new prophet this new king but they wanted it their new king to be the same as Moses in Deuteronomy God has promised another prophet so people are praying for that new prophet they want their second exodus that's what they would have prayed for at this time they've been praying to God for the new prophet, for the new exodus. But Jesus then said, now is the second exodus. Jesus said, I am your new prophet. I am your new king. However, Jesus said, I am not the same as Moses. I am different. And the difference was that Jesus was God. And that shocked the Jewish teachers. That shocked the Jewish people. Because they assumed that the second prophet would be like Moses. And Jesus said, well, no, I'm not. However, I'm better than Moses. And the Jews couldn't get their heads around this. They couldn't see how... Jesus could claim to be better than Moses, but he did, because Jesus said that he was God. And in the Gospels, there are a lot of references to the second exodus and how that had come, that had come about through Jesus, that Jesus was the saviour of the world and that Jesus had forgiven sins. And that is what Jesus taught throughout the Gospels. We do not know how Jewish people actually did celebrate the Passover at the time when Jesus was alive. We don't know that in detail. However, in the Gospels, we see so many references between the Passover and Jesus. It's impossible to separate them out, to be honest. And if we try and take that out, we're not actually going to understand who Jesus was and what he was teaching. We are missing the whole point that Jesus said. The second exodus had come with him. The second exodus had happened. In Paul's writings, we can see Paul very clearly said that we should still celebrate the Passover. And yet when we look at Christians throughout the world, it's something that's really been dropped. People aren't doing it. So it's something we need to think about. Should Christians actually be celebrating the Passover? When we think about the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, we eat the bread we drink the wine, but we don't do that thinking about the Passover. For many churches, when we celebrate the Eucharist, there is no focus on Passover at all. But I actually think it's really important that as part of the Eucharist, that we remember the Passover celebrations. We've really let go of that as a Christian community. And we need to bring that back in. There's a very clear link. So how should Christians celebrate the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper? Well, that's a massive, massive topic. And I think it starts really with starting to understand more about the Jewish community and how they celebrate Passover. I mean, it's not the same now as it was in Jesus' time. It's not anymore. But the Passover that's celebrated by Jewish people now has so many rich traditions which can really give us a clearer understanding of the story of the Exodus. And when we really get to grips with the story of the Exodus, then we can get to grips with the story of the second exodus. 
And it's that kind of understanding or maybe getting involved with the Jewish community. I don't know how we all do that. I speak to many Jewish Christians who will say to me that Christians themselves don't have any connection, feel that they've no connection to Jews. But I, they do believe that Christians should be celebrating the Passover. And a lot of people, you know, who are not Jewish, Christians who are Jewish, say, well, you shouldn't do that. That's our, that's our tradition. It's our festival. It's our celebration. It's not yours. It's a holiday that we've taken on. So Jewish Christians will say you should, but Jews who aren't part of that will say no. And so it's difficult, I think, when we sit in the middle of that. But it does leave us with that challenge. And I think part of what we need to do is to get a little bit more involved with Jewish culture and understand and show a bit more respect to that. I'm sorry, we do have two minutes left for questions. Um, I'm a bit late finishing. So, any questions? Can I just thank uh, Noah on everyone's behalf for a really interesting presentation this morning. Does anybody have any questions? Can I ask you just to raise your hand, please, if you do. If you do have any questions, if you wouldn't mind raising your hands. If you're going to be... Um, Speaking, just make sure that we can hear you at the front. That's quite important to so speak quite loudly. Any hands up for questions, please? Anybody other me? Okay. Um, we've got a question here. My question is, why did Jesus say this is the blood of the new covenant? What, can you clarify that for me? Yes, Paul said Jesus was the Passover lamb. And in the Gospels, we have so many references to Jesus as being the lamb. And Jesus, you know, his blood was shed at the Passover festival. And so the Jewish people, when they would have heard anything about blood, the first thing they would have been thinking of was the blood of the lamb. For them, that's what the relevance was. So when Jesus talked about blood, he was saying that he is our Passover lamb. In the new covenant, which means Jesus was saying, follow me. Any more questions? I uh, would have come across a few Jewish people in the past in my workplace and they would have mentioned the um, lamb that shank as being symbolic because the bone itself was in memory of what had happened before. And so we talk about the lamb as being Jesus, but if Jews are still using the lamb bone, what's that got to do? What's the connection there? Some Jews will use a lamb bone and some won't. They'll actually use a chicken bone because um, there isn't a slaughter process anymore and that's why. So, for example, there are Jews who will be very much against any idea of having a lamb now because there is no temple. And that's, that's a historic thing that's been passed down. Last question. Okay, I, I have a question. Um, I come from a family background where um, they were a Jewish family. Um, I'm now a Christian, and you said a lot of things that for me, coming from a Jewish background, have been very, very interesting. So as a Christian, you talked about should we celebrate the Passover? So do you think, you know, now that I'm a Christian, it's important? Because there are some people say you should and some people you shouldn't, and I've certainly seen that coming from a Jewish tradition myself. I mean, having grown up within a family um, where we were Jew, the problem is that people would have not wanted to talk at all about Jesus. But how can I encourage my Jewish family to accept me? Because they see me as going with a belief that they don't have. So it's causing problems. 
Well, if I could answer that question, I would be a very rich man. I mean, that's the reality is, <laughs> there's no easy answer. How do we integrate the two belief systems? How do we bring it all together? We need to respect the Jewish traditions and the Jewish beliefs. Because the Jewish Passover came first and it has been ongoing. Now we do have our Lord's Supper and we could do something to that to make it more in memory of the Passover or we could have another way of doing it which might be about actually celebrating the Passover at night. There are different views on this. It could be that perhaps one Sunday a month, you know, when people are having the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, I think people just take the bread and the wine and that's it. You know, there's not a lot of explanation, but I think that the church itself could take on board explaining that to people, that it's not separate, that it's all part of the same thing. Because when we don't talk about the Passover, we miss out on so much of the story of who Jesus was and how God came to earth and how he came to rule on this earth and how God leads his people, how God speaks to his people, how he sent Jesus to the earth. All of that is part of that same story. Well, thank you very much for what you've had to say. Thank you all for coming along. Can I ask you to remember to fill in the feedback sheets that are sitting on your chairs? If you do have children, then please make sure you get them before one o'clock. So thank you, Noah. Can I just ask you all to join in? This is the way you say thank you, so you might want to do it our way. Thank you.